this thing? Oh, you talk through it. It's what? You talk through and then it says what you're saying. Yeah? You know what that's called? What? A microphone. Yeah. Microphone. I know that thing. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the eight-day ride of me and your older sister, the Great American Road Trip. You guys ready? Yeah. All right, let's go. All right, it's 500 miles from here to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and it's after 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I feel good about this trip. You ready to go? Yep. Welcome to American Esoterica. History class gives you the leg of the trip between Gettysburg and Boston. This is the getting pulled over by a state trooper in Rhode Island. The essential stuff in between. The personalities, events, and other ephemera that shape our history and culture. I'm Brian Powers. Oh, and thanks for letting me off with a warning. All right, guys. This is the story of the Great American Road Trip, an eight-day excursion that I took with my oldest child, your sister, in early June of 2023, and all the amazing historical places we visited and all the interesting things we learned there. Along with me for this travelogue are my three littlest kids, here to help me keep things moving. So the first place that we visited on our trip was a place called the Gettysburg National Military Park. It was the scene of the most difficult battle of the Civil War, and it was about as far north as the Confederate Army got. I know, right? save for that one little skirmish in Vermont, but that's a story for another day. And it's the same place where Abraham Lincoln gave his most famous speech, the Gettysburg Address. Wow. I do you guys know who Abraham Lincoln is? Abraham Lincoln, yeah. John Ham Lincoln. Yes. John Ham Lincoln. You referred to him now as John Ham Lincoln, which is fantastic. <laughs> Charlie, he's not John Ham Lincoln. So we are standing right now at the Soldiers' Monument in Gettysburg National Cemetery. And this is the spot on November 19th in 1863 where Abraham Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address. Abraham Lincoln was tasked with making a few appropriate remarks. Lincoln was actually the second person to speak at the consecration of the cemetery. The first speaker spoke for almost two hours to a crowd of 20,000. And then they sang a hymn, and then Abraham Lincoln got up and delivered a 272-word, two-minute speech. If anybody can remember anything that was said during the first two hours, let me know. What I also think is interesting is that the Battle of Gettysburg took place on July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, 1863. It was on July 4th that Lee began his retreat. This was the high-water mark of the Confederacy in the Civil War, and it happened on July 4th a date which has absolutely no significance in American history. So on the next morning, day three of our trip, we first checked out the place where two different presidents were born right next to each other. Oh, that's really cool. 
and they were father and son. We're staying at the corner of Presidents Avenue and Franklin Street in Braintree, Massachusetts. Right across the street is the Sweeney Brothers Home for Funerals. I can see the shop and save where I can buy some beer, wine, and liquor. There's Quincy Auto Tech, and uh, McKay's Breakfast and Lunch is next to South Shore Dental Prosthetics across the street. The reason why we're here actually is because in the middle of all of this um, thriving commerce and funeral homes and places to buy prosthetics are the twin birthplaces of John Adams and John Quincy Adams. In fact, they're two houses and they're right next to each other. So here in 1735, John Adams was born, and then his son, John Quincy Adams, was born in literally the house next door in 1767. Both houses are still here. Oh, and they're closed for the season. It's amazing to be standing in a spot where two presidents and founding fathers were born. It's here that John Adams worked on the Massachusetts State Constitution, which apparently served as a model for the National Constitution. After that, we went to a place that was known for where they used to have big hunts for witches. Oh. And a lot of people were accused of being a witch. <gasps> we are on the street by the town common in Salem, Massachusetts. And I think the most interesting thing that we often forget about the Salem witch trials is that, well, in America, we don't burn witches. We hang them. Except for Giles Corey, who we crush with a whole bunch of rocks, but, uh, he accused his wife of witchcraft, so we're really not gonna give him a whole lot of sympathy at this point. When they loaded the rocks on top of him, instead of confessing, he just said, more weight. Then we went up to Maine for some lobster. Lobster? Yep, we went lobster. up to Maine for some lobster, and then we stopped at a fort that had been there for pretty much 400 years. Lobster looks like big crawdads. But they're just like red. We get crawdads? I know, I know what they look like. Yeah. And I know what lobsters look like. So they, they pretty much look the same. We're going to have to get some someday, aren't we? Just like bigger and smaller. We are here at Fort McClary in Kittery Point, Maine. And I think one of the most interesting things about this fort, which is part of a series of defenses stretching back to 1721, is that in 1864, Hannibal Hamlin, who was Abraham Lincoln's first vice president, reported for duty here in the Coast Guard at the rank of private while he was sitting vice president. So the next day, we went to a place called Lexington. <gasps> Lexington. Yeah, but not the Lexington. You're right. You're very smart. That's not the Lexington that we go to over here. Our Lexington was named after that Lexington. Because that's where the Revolutionary War, which is how we got our freedom, began. Yep, I already know that. Well, you're very smart. Where we are now is the place where, on April 19th, 1775, Captain Parker lined up 76 or 77 Minutemen to face off against the British on the Lexington Town Square. In that first skirmish, eight militiamen fell. One of them, John Harrington, crawled across Lexington Green back to his house, which is literally right across the street, and he died in his wife's arms. One of the men who was wounded here was Prince Estabrook, who was an enslaved man, but came to fight for the cause of American freedom, ironically enough. He later joined the full Continental Army and fought throughout the American Revolution, earning his freedom by the time it was over. The Minutemen were actually not 
the full colonial militia. The Minutemen were actually an elite group of people pulled from the ranks of the militia, and they were called the Minutemen because they were able to get ready at a minute's notice to join the battle. But they were not the entirety of the forces here. The words carved on the memorial to the Battle of Lexington were actually spoken by the Reverend John Hancock, who was buried at the old burying ground. It was his house that Paul Revere and William Dawes were writing to, to warn the Minutemen of the approaching British. We're standing in what is called, and I'm not kidding, Ye Old Burying Ground in Lexington. It's behind the first church in Lexington, which is directly across the street from Lexington Green and the Battle of Lexington. In the spot where we are standing, there is a marker that says, near this spot, the eight Minutemen killed April 19th, 1775, were first buried. Their remains were removed to the Battle Green April 20th, 1835. Here in Ye Old Burying Ground, there is a grave with British flags on it. And it is the grave of a British soldier who was wounded on April 19th, and he died in Buckman Tavern on April 22nd, 1775. We're standing at the monument that was erected by the inhabitants of Lexington in 1799 to honor those who fell in the Battle of Lexington in 1775. What I like about this is standing here, there's a whole lot of energy in this inscription. I love the writing on this thing. There are three solid exclamations here. The very first thing it says is, sacred to liberty and the rights of mankind. And it's got three exclamation points. The freedom and independence of America sealed and defended with the blood of her sons. Then it talks about, you know, the monuments erected by the inhabitants of Lexington, et cetera, et cetera. These people who died, who fell on this field, the first victims of the sword of British tyranny and oppression on the morning of the ever-memorable 19th of April, Anno Domini, 1775. But then, then it goes on. And this is where the writing gets really flowery and exciting. The die was cast, three exclamation points. The blood of these martyrs and the cause of God and their country was the cement of the union of these states, then colonies, and gave the spring to the spirit, firmness, and resolution of their fellow citizens. They rose as one man to revenge their brethren's blood, and at the point of the sword to assert and defend their native rights. They nobly dared to be free! Two exclamation points. The contest was long, bloody, and affecting. Righteous heaven approved the solemn appeal. Victory crowned their arms and the peace, liberty, and independence of the United States of America was their glorious reward. I couldn't have written that better myself. Right now, I'm out of breath, because I'm old, and I just climbed the hill leading to the belfry overlooking Lexington Green. What I like about this is there is a fairly detailed plaque which gives the history of this building, which is, this belfry was erected on this hill in 1761, and removed to the common in 1768. In it was hung the bell which rung out the alarm on the 19th of April, 1775. In 1797, it was removed to the Parker Homestead in the south part of the town. In 1891, it was brought back to this hill by the Lexington Historical Society. Destroyed by a gale in 1909, rebuilt 1910. After that first battle in Lexington, the British Army marched into a town called Concord and started setting a few buildings on fire, which made the militias there think that they were going to burn the down. But here's the thing, they didn't really try and burn the town down. So we're here at the North Bridge in Concord, Massachusetts. After the Battle of Lexington, of course, where several hundred British faced 
just shy of 80 Minutemen. The British had marched on to Concord to relieve the militias of their stores of weapons, ammunition, and artillery, which they had built up. Apparently, they had built up stores enough to supply 15,000 men, which was the size of a growing army. British didn't want that to happen. So they were here in Concord after meeting up to 80 militia in Lexington. They might have expected a smoother fight. They faced over 400 colonial militia when they got here to North Bridge. They were led by Major John Buttrick, who cried out, Fire, fellow soldiers, for God's sake, fire. And then he himself fired first on the British. This was the shot heard around the world. And that was coined by local resident Ralph Waldo Emerson. This is the first time that British colonists in the United States were firing on soldiers from their own country. The British were defeated here at the bridge, but decided to retreat back to Boston. They didn't face an easy fight of it. What had started on the morning of April 19th in 1775 turned into more than 4,000 local militia and Minutemen joining the fight by the end of the day, harassing the British all the way back to Boston. The British faced nearly 300 casualties, while the Minutemen and militias had only faced just shy of 100. Another thing that's here at the Concord Battleground by the North Bridge is this is, there is a grave of British soldiers that died in the battle here. The inscription says, Grave of British Soldiers. They came 3,000 miles and died to keep the past upon its throne. Unheard beyond the ocean tide, their English mother made her moan. April 19th, 1775. It was a hard day for the British soldiers because it was a 20-mile march to Concord from Boston. And they had started it at 10 p.m. the night before. So they marched all night long. <sighs> then they fought a battle on the way there. A battle when they got there. And then they had to fight a battle all the way back to Boston. They did it all without stopping for rest. No way. Oh, Must be tired. The day after we visited Lexington and Concord, we spent the day in Boston, which is where a lot of important events took place, such as... The Boston Tea Party. Hey, Charlie, you got, you got a Boston, Boston tea from it. You got a Boston Tea Party. That's when a bunch of people put on disguises and dumped a bunch of crates of tea off of some British ships because they were mad that the British were taxing them too much. And the cool thing is in some of those museums, they still have some of that tea. <gasps> but I, I hear the song by the... the, the so they were wooden boxes, uh, I hear the song for the museum with the ships in the water. Yeah? No, he said the saw, he saw the box with the ships in the water and they were throwing off. Oh, yeah, that's what they did. Yeah. We're at the Old South Meeting House. It was built in 1729 as a Puritan meeting house, but none other than Benjamin Franklin was baptized here. And it was here on December 16th, 1773, that more than 5,000 colonists met to protest the ta protest. protest. It was here on December 16th, 1773, the colonists gathered to protest the tea tax, and Samuel Adams gave the signal that started the Boston Tea Party. Okay, this is so cool, because in the Old South Meeting House, there's a musket that was used in the Battle of Lexington. 
There's an inscription up here on the gallery that says, During the occupation of Boston by the British, this meeting house was used by the Queen's Light Dragoons as a riding school. Soon after the evacuation, Washington, looking down from this gallery on the wreck which the British had left, reverently expressed surprise that those who had venerated their own churches should have desecrated ours. And that's just an excited history lover behind me, making those amazing noises. We are staying at the site where, on March 5th, 1770, the Boston Massacre took place. All right, we are standing in the old state house, and we're staring at a musket with a bayonet that was found near the massacre site right after it happened. This is a musket with a bayonet that may have been used in the Boston Massacre. So here in the old state house, they have a bottle containing a tea from Major Thomas Melville. He was a member of the Boston Tea Party, and after he returned from the Boston Tea Party, his wife found tea in his boot and saved it in a little vial. And that vial is right here. Here is his cocked hat. It's a tricorner hat worn by Thomas Melville, who was memorialized by Oliver Wendell Holmes as the last Bostonian to wear a tricornered hat. So we are at the old state house looking out at the balcony. This is the spot where, on July 18th, 1776, the Declaration of Independence was read to the citizens of Boston for the first time. And that very night, they went to the very top of the building and tore off the lion and the unicorn, which represented the British monarchy. And at that point, Boston was no longer British. We visited a monument to the Battle of Bunker Hill, but it didn't actually happen at Bunker Hill. The people who were going to set up to fight put their army on the wrong hill, and neither side seemed to figure it out. Daddy. Yep. What was that from? Which hill? Well, they were actually on a hill called Breed's Hill. <gasps> Sorry, but Is that silly? So, so we can call it Breed's Hill? Breed's, Breed's Hill. Yeah, but we can call it Breed's Hill. Breed's Hill Battle. Bunker Hill. Well, yeah, but it's still called the Battle of Bunker Hill. It's silly, right? Yeah. We're here, the memorial, the monument to Bunker Hill. I can't, out of shape, out of shape. We are standing here at the memorial to the Battle of Bunker Hill, which of course is atop of Breed's Hill. See, the Battle of Bunker Hill didn't actually take place at Bunker Hill, it took place on Breed's Hill. On June 16th, 1775, just two months after the fighting at Lexington Concord, 1,200 militiamen had lined up here and the British crossed the Charles River with 2,200 forces. Now, the British won the ground, but they lost over half their men in doing so, which is what you call a Pyrrhic victory. It was consecrated in 1843 with both Daniel Webster and President John Tyler present. And it wasn't just a memorial, it was a feat of engineering. To build this monument, they built the first commercial railway in America to bring granite from quarries in Quincy, Massachusetts. The USS Constitution is the oldest working warship in the world. And it is still sailing over 220 years <gasps> after it was built. How cool is that? Okay, so that's the longest still working battleship. In the world. Where are we right now? Well, there's a boat. There is a boat. We are at the USS Constitution, whose hull was laid down in 1797. And this is the oldest commissioned warship afloat, Old Ironsides, famous for the War of 1812. And she is indeed afloat. We are sitting here watching this ship um, floating, for lack of a better word. Stand by. Bye. 
We are here at the Old North Church, which was founded in 1723 and is very famous for its lanterns, which you can get in batches of one or two. It was, of course, a lantern that was hung here that warned Paul Revere of which direction the British had chosen, mainly because these were the days before you could just fire up ways and find the best route to Lexington from Boston. So we're staying in front of a plaque, uh, mainly because the place that it commemorates is no longer here. Here stood the mansion of Governor Thomas Hutchinson, built about 1687. The reason it's not here anymore is because on a night in 1765, about 3,000 angry colonists descended upon the house and over the course of a night, tore it down. They stole all of his belongings, tore the roof off the place, literally, and destroyed the mansion overnight. So, uh, yep, there's a tablet here showing you where it was, but it's not here any longer courtesy of the U.S. of A. We're standing in the marketplace in Faneuil Hall. And screw you, Faneuil Hall, I got nothing to say about you. You closed down before we go see the Great Hall. There's no history for you. We saw a lot of cemeteries that had a lot of famous people buried in them. We're at the King's Chapel Burial Ground, which was founded in 1630. and actually has a passenger of the Mayflower buried in here. But actually, uh, from the revolutionary generation, there is William Dawes, who rode with Paul Revere on his great midnight ride. A patriot and son of liberty, he died on February 25th, 1799. So we're standing here in the old granary bearing ground. This is famous for being the final resting place of many American historical figures. Among them, Samuel Adams, Paul Revere, Benjamin Franklin's parents, but I think maybe the most important and most interesting are the graves of the victims of the Boston Massacre. The remains of Samuel Gray, Samuel Maverick, James Caldwell, Crispus Attucks, and Patrick Carr. It's always kind of struck me that Crispus Attucks, who is largely seen as the first person to fall in the Boston Massacre, was a fugitive slave. He was a former enslaved person. Crispus Attucks was part black, and part Native American. So the first person to fall for the cause of American freedom was part black, part Native American, and a former slave. Crispus Attucks was actually just in town as a sailor looking to pick up more work. When he got caught up in the protests outside the Customs House, those protests became the Boston Massacre. When British troops fired at the order of their commander, fire, damn you, shot into the crowd. Another thing to note is that the monument of the person who signed the Declaration of Independence, the largest, John Hancock, just happens to be the largest monument here in the cemetery. Um, and, well, trying to find ways to describe John Hancock's memorial that are appropriate. It's um, just large, thrusting up out of the ground, tall, rock-hard monument to John Hancock. Good old John Hancock. After leaving the Boston area, we have said goodbye to Massachusetts and are now in Rhode Island. There was one place in Massachusetts that we didn't stop, and that was Plymouth Rock. Why did we not go to Plymouth Rock? It seems like it would be a pretty important thing in American history. I'll tell you why we didn't go to Plymouth Rock. It's because it's just a rock. Here's the thing. Generations after the Pilgrims landed at Plymouth, there was a rock down on the seashore that town planners wanted to demolish to build a new pier for ships. One old guy stood up and said, you can't blow up that rock. My daddy 
told me that's where the pilgrim shot off the Mayflower. And we've been calling it Plymouth Rock and treating it like a very important piece of American history ever since. Even though there is literally no other evidence to show that anything happened at that rock. But the rock is still there. There is now a little shrine built around it. So in maybe the most American way possible, we have enshrined a piece of history that turns out may not actually have any historical significance whatsoever. The next day, we drove to the Statue of Liberty. Hey daddy, hey daddy, on the Lego Construction, today I saw a Statue of the Lego Man in it. A Statue of Liberty Lego Man? Show yeah. me. Show me. That's pretty awesome. So we're standing here on Liberty Island at the base of the Statue of Liberty. I can't even tell you how amazing it is to be here. What I didn't know is that the 11-pointed star at the base of the Statue of Liberty's pedestal was actually here long before there was a Statue of Liberty. It's Fort Wood, which was built in the early 19th century as part of a series of defenses around the city. Fort Wood was the original 11-point star that they then built the pedestal for the Statue of Liberty on. So this whole structure is not all of one piece. Something else I learned here is that the ironworks inside the Statue of Liberty holding up the copper skin were designed by none other than Alexander Gustav Eiffel. Ironically enough, during the Civil War, Fort Wood, which again was here before the Statue of Liberty, housed Confederate prisoners of war. Fort Wood was a Confederate prisoner of war camp, and it was actually one of the dozens of military hospitals in the city as well. Fort Wood remained a U.S. Army post from 1811 to 1942. Its high point as harbor defense came about in 1814 during the War of 1812 because the military was concerned that the British would attack New York next. So we're in the Statue of Liberty Museum, and one of the interesting things to note is that when they unveiled the statue, there were a bunch of speeches to be made, and somebody was supposed to give the signal to unveil the face of the Statue of Liberty. It was actually Auguste Bartoli who was the sculptor. Of course, then, he was in the crown awaiting somebody to give the signal, when one of the speakers paused and his helper mistakenly gave the signal and released the curtain too early, right in the middle of the speech. Of course, and by then it was all over, it was too late. Cannons thundered, brass bands roared, the steam whistles blew from hundreds of ships in the harbor. They overpowered the words of the speaker who was trying to introduce the Statue of Liberty. You guys are starting to get squirmy, I need to wrap this up. The day after we went to the Statue of Liberty, we spent a full day in New York City. And we went to the place where George Washington became president for the first time. Do you, guys, do you know who George Washington is? George Washington. Who is George Washington? George Washington. That was great. Say it louder. The first president. Fantastic. George Hamilton. George Hamilton. Can you remember that joke? What? Quit pulling hair. Joke? No pulling hair. Oh, yeah. No kicking. Yeah. Stop kicking. Like, why are the cars in the job? George Washington did it. What? <laughs> I mean, try to have a joke. What's a joke? <laughs> Who put the cars in the drum? Then Jen said, George Washington. Who put the cars in the drum? George Washington. So here we are in New York, and we are in Federal Hall down on Wall Street. 
And of course, this being me, I'm not here for the New York Stock Exchange. I'm here because this is the place where on April 30th, 1789, George Washington took the oath of office as the first president of the United States of America. And right now we are staring at the giant flagstone that he was standing on when he took the oath. Now, this isn't the original building, but they still have the flagstone, and it's been inscribed with this interesting historical anecdote. This is where he stood. This is where the presidency of the United States began. Federal Hall isn't just the place where George Washington was sworn in. It actually became home to the entire United States government during the first year of operating under the Constitution, effectively serving as the first Capitol building. So we're standing in the cemetery of Trinity Church on Wall Street in downtown Manhattan, and we are at the gravesite of Alexander Hamilton, along with Eliza, daughter of Philip Schuyler and widow of Alexander Hamilton, who is buried right in front of him. They are not the only important and interesting and famous people buried at the cemetery, and hopefully you can hear me through the mask. We are here on a day when the air quality is very, very, very poor due to smoke from Canadian wildfires. We just happened to time our visit for the worst air quality in New York City history. But some other people who are buried in the cemetery include Robert Fulton. Robert Fulton is the man who invented the first commercially successful steamboat. Other names that might be familiar are Hercules Mulligan. Basically, if somebody was in the play Hamilton, well, they're buried here. Also buried here is the wife of William Franklin the last colonial governor of New Jersey, the daughter-in-law of Benjamin Franklin, and the woman who moved to New York to be near her husband while he was in prison for essentially being a British spy. She died while he was in prison, also buried at the Trinity Church Cemetery graveyard. Captain James Lawrence, he was the commander of the frigate Chesapeake and his famous dying words were, don't give up the ship. So we're standing up here on the 86th floor of the Empire State Building. It's not the tallest floor, but if we look up at the spire, what's cool about the spire is that it was originally built to be a docking station for airships because that's what they that's where they thought transportation was going. Um, sadly, no, they do not dock airships up here. I think they did try at least once and it was it did not work out very well. All right, guys, we are almost at the end, okay? We're almost done. Our last day on the road, we went to the city of Philadelphia, where we saw the place where the Declaration of Independence was signed and one of the most famous symbols of liberty, the Liberty Bell. Yeah, I, I saw pictures that we went. So we're standing in Philadelphia, out in front of Independence Hall. But actually, the site we're standing at now is the exposed foundation of the basement of what was the president's house from 1790 to 1800. Two presidents lived here, George Washington and John Adams, and the section that is exposed that they've been able to reclaim is the basement section, which is where the enslaved folks worked. That is where George Washington brought some of his enslaved folks with him from Virginia, from Mount Vernon, to work here in his house in Philadelphia. So it's a stark contrast to the promise of freedom that's embodied here in Independence Hall, which is literally less than a block away. So we're standing right now next to the Liberty Bell, and it has an interesting history. Just like Plymouth Rock, it's one of those things that we've kind of Americanized and mythologized, despite the fact that it doesn't have nearly as much significance as we thought it did through legend. For instance, no, there's no evidence that it ever rang out on July 4th, 1776 to proclaim our liberty. It was the State House bell above what is now Independence Hall 
that called the Assemblymen to order. It was installed there in 1751. It's actually the second bell made out of the same metal. The first bell arrived and it cracked immediately. So they melted it down and reported it by two men named John Pass and John Stowe. But the crack is not actually a crack. The big famous crack down the side of the Liberty Bell is actually a repair that was made to fix a small hairline crack in 1846 that had appeared after 90 years of just hard use, but it didn't work. It became known as the Liberty Bell in the 1830s after abolitionists adopted it as a somewhat ironic symbol of freedom as it hung over the Independence Hall. And it was again used as a symbol of liberty during the women's suffrage movement. We're standing outside of Independence Hall in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which is where on July the, everybody, 2nd of 1776, the vote for independence was held. A couple days later, they put together some sort of document and some people signed it and all that jazz. But, you know, really the important thing was that on the 2nd, the vote to be independent and free of Britain took place here. This is where independence began. This is the spot where on July 8th, Colonel John Nixon read the document publicly after people had been summoned by the bells of the city to the State House grounds. There's no record that the bell that summoned them here was the State House bell, which we now know as the Liberty Bell. Not only is there no evidence that the bell rang out on July 8th, 1776, uh, there's also evidence that the very, very heavy bell was taking a toll on the rotting wood in the surrounding structure around it, and so it was being used more and more sparingly. We, guys, we had so much fun and we ate so much food. What did you think was the most interesting part? Well, you went to your statue and nobody. Yep, Charlie, what did you think was the most interesting part? I could pass over to you the pasta. That cat, I think it was cat. That was my favorite part. The when Cat got the pasta. Yeah. What did you think was the most interesting part of our trip? Uh, the guys with the guns shooting the boat. Wait, no, wait, wait, wait. The guys with the guns shooting from the boat. No, no, yeah. wait, wait, wait. Which so? Which part did you think was the most interesting? Uh, the guys with the guns hitted the boat. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. This is American Mesoterica. This is American Bioterica. It's about 3.20 a.m. And after eight days on the road, we are about to pull in to our home. We've driven from Staten Island to Philadelphia to uh, Central Kentucky all in one day today. We are exhausted. <laughs> We're running out of gas. <laughs> we got to see everything from the early British colonial life on up through the American Revolution and beyond. We got to visit two of our nation's capitals in its very early stages. And we got to see the high water mark of the Confederacy during the Civil War. I think that's enough history for one week. So with that, as we're about to pull into our house, this has been American Esoterica. All sounds are made by me, uh, my daughter Kat, I think some guy randomly playing a tin whistle outside of the Visitor Center in Lexington, Massachusetts. Uh, various people talking around behind me. 
and ringing bells and all kinds of stuff. This was a group effort. Thanks everybody for being a part of it. Did I get it wrong? Probably. Yeah, probably. Did I get it right? Just want to talk about how hard we had to run to get all that in in eight days? Drop me a note. The address is yell at AmericanEsoterica.com. Thank you for listening and God bless America. I like to, I like to knowing like oh god he's gonna podcast again, yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Anything yeah. to say on that? No. Yeah. No. Okay, we're good. All right.